We've just published the book, The Adventures of Lola Badiola. It's the perfect complement for this podcast. It includes complete transcripts, explanations, and quizzes. So buy it now on Amazon. Hello and welcome back to The Adventures of Lola Badiola. In the last chapter, we enjoyed an evening with Lola and Concha at a Lebanese restaurant in the Malasana district of Madrid. In this chapter, we're going to return to North Korea and pick up the action where we left it. If you remember, Park had decided to defect from North Korea and follow the escape plan of Kim Dae-won. Let's find out what happened next. The Adventures of Lola Badiola, Chapter 42 The Tomb of the Glorious Farmer Park remained hidden in the bicycle carriage until the rider had taken him beyond the streetlights of the city. It was a clear night and the moon illuminated the way into the empty countryside. It wasn't long before the urban sounds diminished, and all Park could hear was the squeaking of an unoiled bicycle chain and the panting of his diligent rider. It was a bitterly cold night. The temperature was just above freezing, but the humidity made it feel a lot harsher. Park pulled the enormous collar of his Russian army coat around his head so that only his eyes and forehead protruded from the material. He sat silently in the carriage, looking out into the shadowy trees that lined the route into Jungi Forest. Keep going until we reach the tomb of the glorious farmer. The rider of the carriage acknowledged his instructions with a grunt. As each kilometre passed, the road became more potholed. The rider had to weave from one side to the other in order to avoid the deepest cracks. Eventually, the surface disappeared entirely to leave a rutted pathway that only a horse could navigate. This is as far as I can go. How far is it from here? About two kilometres. Okay, wait here. Yes, sir. Park jumped out of the carriage, stretched his legs, and then continued his journey on foot into the darkness and the wilderness of the unwelcoming forest. The tomb of the glorious farmer was built in 1999, following the great famine of the previous five years. Nobody knew how many peasants had died during the period of mass starvation, but the estimates were between 240,000 and three and a half million. The government had labelled it the March of Suffering, blaming the shortage of food on foreign enemies, the Japanese, the capitalists or the imperialists. The tomb commemorated this noble struggle against the forces of evil. Park knew the truth. He had read about it from a wide variety of international sources. It was a homemade disaster, the result of economic mismanagement, political isolation and endemic corruption. In the winter of 1996, hundreds of thousands of starving peasants had made their way from their drought-ridden and infertile lands to the outskirts of Pyongyang. This was not a revolution. It was not an attempt to overthrow the government. It was a desperate cry for help. The pathetic mass of humanity had been blocked by the military. They were prevented from entering the gates of the city and left to perish at the perimeter of Pyongyang. The piles of dead bodies were collected in trucks and dumped in mass graves in Jungi Forest. 
As Park made his way along the path that led to the tomb, he shuddered at the thought of the bones that were buried beneath his feet and the lost souls that floated between the trees. Amongst the dead were his mother, his father, and his little sister, Dal Rey. Where were they now? What part of this godforsaken graveyard did they occupy? It was starting to get light by the time Park arrived at the monument. It was a pyramid consisting of 1,996 blocks of stone about 20 metres high. At each apex was the statue of Chulima, a mythical winged horse too rapid to be ridden by any mortal, an ironic symbol of North Korea's economic future. In the years since the tomb had been built, the country had moved on, reforms had been made and further famines narrowly avoided. Two supreme leaders had come and gone, and the current dictator wanted to distance his regime from the apocalyptic events of the 1990s. Consequently, the monument was no longer celebrated or even mentioned. It was left to decay and fall into ruin. It was only prevented from disappearing into the forest by the relatives who, like Park, came to pay their respects to the loved ones that they had lost. Park sat at the foot of one of the statues and meditated. He journeyed deep into his childhood memories. I am in a field planting seeds with my father. I am in the house washing plates with my mother. I am catching cockroaches with my sister. We march with many others to the city. Now I am in a windowless orphanage. A man from the government visits. He tests our physical and mental abilities. I am moved to a boarding school. There is soap, hot water and clean bedsheets. I receive classes in maths, physics and computer science. I excel. I am the best in the class, the best in the school, the best that they have ever taught. The other children bully me. They call me the peasant. They attack me while I'm sleeping. I win a place at a prestigious university. I obtain a master's degree in physics. I am recruited by the cybercrime division of the North Korean government. Park curled up at the foot of the monument, wrapped up in his Russian army coat, and fell into a restless sleep, the memories of his life flashing before him in an abstract and mixed-up manner. He had journeyed to the tomb of the glorious farmer to bid a final farewell to his family. He was closing one chapter before the next was opened. Okay, let's spend some time talking about adjectives and adverbs. Do you find yourself always using the same adjectives? Do you wish that you could describe things in English in a more specific and interesting manner, the way you do in your own language? It's really worthwhile making a note of any interesting adjectives or adverbs that you read or hear and think about how you can incorporate them into your communication. So let's do that now. Have a listen to this sentence again. It wasn't long before the urban sounds diminished, and all Park could hear was the squeaking of an unoiled bicycle chain and the panting of his diligent rider. The adjective diligent means hard-working, performing a task with a lot of care and attention. It's the kind of adjective you might include in an evaluation of one of your colleagues 
or even in your own self-evaluation, along with other adjectives such as committed, focused, and reliable. Okay, now listen to the adjective in this sentence. Park pulled the enormous collar of his Russian army coat around his head so that only his eyes and forehead protruded from the material. Enormous is an adjective that means very big. In this case, we are really emphasizing the size of the collar of the Russian army coat. As I said in a previous podcast, wherever you find yourself saying very plus an adjective, challenge yourself to find a more appropriate adjective. For example, instead of saying very big, say enormous, huge, gigantic, gargantuan. There are so many interesting alternatives. So let's play a little game. I'm going to say very plus an adjective. And I would like you to say out loud a specific adjective as an alternative. So if I say very big, you will say enormous. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. This product is very good. This product is... You could say excellent. You could say outstanding. You could even say fabulous. Why don't you use the word fabulous next time you want to express how impressed you are by something or someone? It's become a very popular adjective by articulate native English speaking people. So use it. Okay, here's the next one. The report is very interesting. The report is... The report is fascinating, intriguing, engaging. I'm sure you recognize some of these words. Perhaps they're similar to words that you use in your own language. Okay, here's the last one. Are you ready? The customer is very angry. The customer is... The customer is furious. The customer is irate. The customer is outraged. The point here is you should make a little note of adjectives that you find interesting. Adjectives that express exactly what you mean. Adjectives that add color to your communication. Now, before we move on from this point, let me tell you a little story about the coat with the enormous collar that Park J. Bong is currently wearing in our story. One day, my father ordered a product that he had seen in a magazine. It was a Russian army coat that promised to keep you warm, whatever the weather. And my father thought the price was very reasonable. It 
seemed like a good deal. And that year, in the UK, the weather forecast was for a very cold winter. And he wanted to be prepared. So a few weeks later, a box arrived, and inside is the Russian army coat. My father needed help lifting it out of the box because it was so heavy. He needed help putting the coat on because it was so heavy. And it had the biggest collar I had ever seen on a coat. The collar was so big that when he put it up, his head completely disappeared. And there was no doubt that this Russian army coat would keep you warm in the coldest of winters in Siberia if you had the strength to wear it and if you had a huge cupboard in which to store it. And my father decided that he had neither of these. So he gave me the coat. And I took it up to Edinburgh University, where I was studying, and I wore it a couple of times when the weather was at its coldest. But within minutes of walking down the street, I was not only exhausted, I was hot and sweating. Now, this Russian army coat is the inspiration for the coat that Park J. Bong is currently wearing in our story. And I can guarantee you from personal experience that it is a coat that will keep him warm in the coldest North Korean winter's night. Just a quick question for you to see if you've been paying attention during the previous chapters. What two items does Park J. Bong have in the pockets of his Russian army coat? I'll leave that one with you. Right, let's move from adjectives to adverbs. And today we're going to look at some intensifying adverbs. These are words that are extremely popular with native English speakers because they add emphasis and impact to their communication. So if you want to sound like a native English speaker, then learn to use intensifying adjectives. Here is an example. It was a bitterly cold night. The temperature was just above freezing, but the humidity made it feel a lot harsher. Bitterly cold. Bitterly is an intensifying adverb. It serves to emphasize just how cold the night was. Bitterly cold is what we call a collocation. And a collocation is a connection of two words that go really well together and are used very frequently together. And it is true that bitterly and cold is a very popular adverb-adjective combination. For example, my mum will walk out into the street at Christmas time and say something like, oh my goodness, it's bitterly cold today. And my dad will say something similar, and so will my sister, and so will I. Bitterly cold is what we call a collocation. Now, here are some other collocations. These are adverb-adjective combinations that are frequently used together that you will hear native English speakers use 
in business situations. And it makes them sound clever and powerful. So here we go. Listen carefully. I fully understand the problems that you face. Fully understand. I sincerely hope that you are able to find employment soon. Sincerely hope. Let me make it absolutely clear. I did not break the law. Absolutely clear. We categorically deny any involvement in corruption. Categorically deny. I deeply regret the bankruptcy of my company. So there we go. Some very common collocations between adverbs and adjectives and adverbs and verbs. Try to get them into your long-term memory. Fully understand. Sincerely hope. Absolutely clear. Categorically deny. Deeply regret. And also, don't forget, if you're in London at Christmas time, bitterly cold. Okay, let's move on. We haven't reviewed interrogatives for some time. So let's do that now. Have a listen to these sentences again. Here we go. This is as far as I can go. How far is it from here? About two kilometers. Okay, wait here. Yes, sir. How far is it? Is the interrogative concerning distance. It is very common to hear non-native speakers say something like, how many kilometers are there until the destination? And reply with a sentence structure such as, there are 200 kilometers to the destination. Okay, that's easy to understand, but it's not how a native English speaker would construct the sentence. They would say, how far is it to the destination? And the answer would be, it is 200 kilometers to the destination. How far is it from London to Paris? It is 340 kilometers from London to Paris. There are a few other interrogative structures that we need to practice. So let's do that now with a little game. I'm going to say the answer to the question and you are going to construct the interrogative. So I will say, she is 50 years old. And you will say out loud, how old is she? Are you ready? Here we go. It's three kilometers from my house to the office. How far is it from your house to the office? Okay, here's the second one. It takes me 25 minutes to walk to the office. How long does it take you to walk to the office? Okay, here's the third and final one. 
The morning meeting lasts 15 minutes. How long does the morning meeting last? Okay, did you express those interrogatives accurately and with ease? If not, just rewind or go back in the podcast and try to do them again. Right, let's move on. Right now, we're going to talk more about North Korea. Have a listen to this paragraph again. The Tomb of the Glorious Farmer was built in 1999, following the Great Famine of the previous five years. Nobody knew how many peasants had died during the period of mass starvation, but the estimates were between 240,000 and 3.5 million. North Korea experienced a catastrophic famine in the mid-1990s. It killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of citizens. The leader at the time was Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current North Korean leader, and he pursued an economic policy of self-reliance. North Koreans were expected to feed themselves without any form of international trade. And in 1995 and 1996, there were extreme weather patterns that led to flooding across the generally infertile farming lands. Whatever food was produced, which was greatly reduced in those years, went to the elites and to the military. And this left the peasants and the farmers and the agricultural workers who make up the majority of North Korea suffering from mass starvation. So how did the government react? Let's return to the story. The government had labelled it the March of Suffering, blaming the shortage of food on foreign enemies, the Japanese, the capitalists or the imperialists. The North Korean government labelled this period the March of Suffering, also known as the Arduous March, deflecting blame from themselves and their own economic mismanagement towards external forces. In our story, how does Park feel about this? Listen to this sentence again. Park knew the truth. He had read about it from a wide variety of international sources. It was a homemade disaster, the result of economic mismanagement, political isolation and endemic corruption. Park knows the truth. He knows the real reasons for the economic and humanitarian disaster of the 1990s. And that part of the story is based on what I have read from various sources about the real circumstances of North Korea at the time. The personal story of Park Jae-bong and his family being buried in Jungi Forest is, of course, entirely fictional. But this moment gives us the opportunity to learn more about our protagonist's childhood as he contemplates his life before saying his final farewell to his family and defecting to the West. Let's listen again to his flashbacks because there is some very interesting vocabulary in this. Here we go. 
I am in a field planting seeds with my father. I am in the house washing plates with my mother. I am catching cockroaches with my sister. We march with many others to the city. Now I am in a windowless orphanage. A man from the government visits. He tests our physical and mental abilities. I am moved to a boarding school. There is soap, hot water and clean bedsheets. I receive classes in maths, physics and computer science. I excel. I am the best in the class, the best in the school, the best that they have ever taught. The other children bully me. They call me the peasant. They attack me while I'm sleeping. I win a place at a prestigious university. I obtain a master's degree in physics. I am recruited by the cybercrime division of the North Korean government. An orphanage is a home for children whose parents are dead or unable to care for them. A boarding school is simply a school where students both study and live. Boarding schools are quite popular with wealthy families in the United Kingdom. The most prestigious schools, such as Eton, where Prince Harry and Prince William were educated, are indeed boarding schools. To bully is the act of hurting or frightening someone else, normally over a long period of time, forcing them to do something that they don't want to do, causing them psychological and possible physical distress. Bullying happens a lot in schools, and teachers have to be very vigilant to ensure the bigger kids are not bullying the younger, smaller children. So there we go. In one short paragraph, we have a summary of Park's life up to this point. And in the coming chapters, we will find out where his life goes from here. And on that point, we have reached the end of today's podcast. If you'd like to learn English in a more structured format, you can join Marina and me for online classes. Just search Club Grattan and you will find us. We hope that you can join us for the next episode. Until then, keep bringing English into your life. And remember, the open liberal democracies into which we have been born need to be appreciated and protected.